Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly, and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today I'm very excited with our Canadian founder, you know, that we're gonna have in the show. Uh, and I think that you're all gonna find this super inspiring. I mean, there's many of you outside of the US that are thinking about how to come here, how to make it happen. So I think that you're gonna find very, very inspiring the story of our guest today. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Francis Davidson. Davidson, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I guess, you know, for the people to really get to know you a little bit here, let's do a little bit of a walk through memory lane. So you were born and raised in the Quebec area there in Canada. So how was life growing up? Yeah, well, listen, I, I'm from a town called Gatineau, which is the, the fourth largest city in Quebec. It's right beside Ottawa, and it's known to be the, the dormitory of Ottawa. Typically, people go there to sleep and then they go work in Ottawa, typically for the federal government, which is, you know, what my family, my both my parents, 35 plus years of service to the federal government. Um, and so I grew up in, a, in an environment that was really kind of great, but not too entrepreneurial. And I think it's uh, somewhat of a surprise that I decided to take the journey, frankly, even a surprise for me uh, when I uh, launched the business, uh, Sonder, uh, when I was in college about age 19. I was at first just trying to solve a problem for myself, uh, trying to figure out what to do with an apartment during the summer in Montreal. And most, you know, it's a great university town. There's like 160,000 students uh, in Montreal and a lot of them just vacate for the summer. So I thought, hey, there's all these empty apartments. There's at the same time, Montreal's a great city, beautiful, great culture. People want to visit it, especially, especially during the summer. And so I thought I could find some travelers to go and stay in those apartments. And maybe I could uh, manage, I'd manage to earn some money that would allow me to pay for my studies. Uh, and that turned out to work pretty damn well. And so a couple of years later, having done this part-time during the summer, I said, hey, I'm going to go into it. I'm going to figure out a way to uh, manage more and more apartments, more cities, and figure out ways to add value to even real estate owners uh, who would uh, potentially have really amazing properties that, that that guests and tourists would like to stay in. And I identified a way to yeah monetize these the, these properties for them by offering really amazing, consistent, high quality experience to guests uh, that were seeking an apartment instead of a hotel room to stay in. I think the core issue here is really that there's no brand in the hospitality segment, um, uh, like a Marriott or a Hilton. Uh, but that operates uh, apartments and homes. And so that was the idea is that we'd built that brand. So um, I, it went right into it. A year later, decided to relocate to San Francisco, where the action was that right after we raised our Series A, um, you know, three, four years of just building the company, expanding internationally, going from having no knowledge at all about the world uh, of business, uh, no money, no network, no experience, 
and just learning the ropes and scaling the organization, bring amazing people to um, you know build it alongside me. And uh, ultimately, uh, the last 18 months have been about uh, you know battling coronavirus, and it's been very difficult for a lot of segments of society. Uh, hospitality, economically, has been hit really, really hard, and so just going through that has been. Um, you know, really um, enlightening. And, 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 and I think we're coming out of it uh, stronger on the other side. And now have announced that we're going to be taking Sonder public uh, through a SPAC IPO. So a lot of my life story is really uh, Sonder. I've spent a third of my life building this company. I'm as dedicated as they come. Um, you know, there's been a lot of ups and downs. Happy to you know, talk about anything that you think might be of interest. But um, really, this is the story of my life. And this is a wonderful snapshot, you know, a 30,000 foot view of what we're going to be, you know, like going into here. So I guess now going into it, I know that you know, at uh, 13 for you, you know, it was quite a, a big moment, you know, where you started to ask yourself about stuff and, you know, also you became like very much into philosophy. So what do you think, you know, like was that teenage, you know, kind of like crisis, you know, in a fun way to label it somehow that really pushed you into really understanding or trying to find the why behind things? Yeah, certainly. I, I mean, I was, I was really a sports person, like growing up, I just every sport you can name hockey being the primary one, of course, as a good Quebecer, I played a ton of hockey. And I'd never read a book before age 16. And uh, what really kind of got me into it was was an altercation or uh, a moment where I was in French literature class, and I couldn't understand a lot of the words that were being used in a novel. And I just underlined a bunch of the words that I couldn't understand. I went up to the teacher and I said, Hey, I can't understand these words, please help me out here. And he looked at me with kind of an air of condescension, to be honest. He was like, oh, you know, this is like elementary school level vocabulary. I can't believe you don't know this. So instead of being kind of kind and supportive, he actually kind of challenged me. And he was like, you're going to have to start reading if you really want to understand these words. And I just like, I don't know, had a chip on my shoulder. I was like, I'm going to I'm going to show you what I can do. And then I think it's one of those things, uh, knowledge where you start yeah, uh, especially as a as a teenager, you start discovering something, and you're like, "Wow!" You you become so fascinated with all the things that are related to it. So I started reading about the Big Bang, Simon Singh's Big Bang is the first book that I read, and a series of others. And really, discipline that I found most fascinating was philosophy. Um, asking myself kind of the core questions of like why we're here and what is morality and what is truth. And I got really really uh, interested. I dropped all the sports and I just became somewhat of a, a, a bookworm, a nerd for the following many years. And I think kind of that that curiosity is intimately related with entrepreneurship. I didn't realize it initially I was quite of a, a leftist back in, you know, when I when I when I when I was in my teenage years. Uh, I didn't think much of business's contribution to society. And I think it's still widely shared perce perception that, you know, multinational corporations, they take more from the world than they give to the world. And I definitely had that 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 perception. Um, but in the process of building a company, I realized that actually organizations could be forces for good. And at the same time, uh, they were incredibly challenging to build. Like they were the ultimate intellectual challenge. Uh, they were much more difficult than reading a few novels and having more vocabulary. They kind of brought together so many disciplines. Um, and you had to have such a good mastery of uh, psychology and of like even financials and probability. And so many disciplines are brought together to build a really great organization, obviously technology organizations in particular. Um, but I really became kind of fascinated with business um, and, and I'm still I'm really, really fascinated with philosophy, I think, just critical thinking and uh, kind of the verbal reasoning that it forces is super beneficial in, in many aspects of life. And I'm sure that for you, when you went to Miguel to do university, you know, then at that point, you were able to combine not only philosophy, which was, you know, something that you were already, you know, incubating there, but then you blend that with economics. And then, you know, voila, you know, it kind of like gave you probably a, an even different perspective you know, on how to tackle things. Yeah, definitely. And I think economics brings the 
the quantitative discipline to the social sciences that I find is really crucial. And I use lessons of economics all the time, in particular statistics, I find are really, really valuable in order to, to make decisions in business and in life. Uh, so really glad that I that I went in that direction as well. But it, it was only for a couple, like two years and a half that I got the time to be fully immersed in my studies. Like the business started kind of growing quite rapidly as I was a student. I think I dropped out of McGill when the business was was doing about a million in revenue, um, which is something I think is a really great introduction to entrepreneurship when you're really yeah. uh, young and in college and you have really nothing to lose. And if it doesn't work, then you just go back to college. So I really kind of every semester that passed, I, I spent a disproportionate time towards the business until I was I was fully in. So you alluded to this uh, earlier on the discussion, but tell us about that moment when you were in school and you know you came across you know this uh, this 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 opportunity and and then you really brought it to life and you know how was that process like? Yeah, so I mean I, I don't think I had a grand ambition for the business initially. It was just like, hey, here's a problem I'm facing. Uh, I can't find a subtenant for my for my apartment. I was I wanted to go back to my hometown during the summer, and it turns out that there's thousands of people that are in the similar situation. And that, you know, part time over the summer, I could make, I don't know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars uh, during the summer. That'd be enough to pay for my living expenses during the year. So it was really kind of with that approach that I that I got into it. I actually entered a, a competition, a business plan competition called the McGill Dobson Cup. And um, what's funny is that we didn't even make it to the finals. Like we were like rejected like really, really early. So I think really interesting lessons of of of, of perseverance there and uh, you know, there's an alternative state of the world where we would just been like, oh, these judges are pretty smart. And like they told us that this business is not going to be very good. We should just kind of pack our bags and stop. But uh, I think, again, um, I want to prove them wrong and to kind of double down. Um, it reminds me almost of uh, of the film uh, Whiplash was one of my favorite films, right? Very controversial film about, um, you know, leadership and, and, and this kind of conductor who's very, very hard on, on this kind of drummer student. Um, and there's a quote about how like, kind of, you know, one of the best musicians of all time, a Charlie Parker was, you know, a symbol was thrown at his head. And it's because of that, that he started practicing more and rose to prominence. And I think there are many instances in my life where, um, you know, I've had, you know, almost a figure of authority, someone I thought was really credible, tell me like, ah, you can't do this. And, you know, I think it's, it's up to up to up to the person that's on the receiving end of that to decide whether that's going to take them down or actually fuel their energy and energize them to actually um, do even better than they would have otherwise. A hundred percent. So you were alluding to that. You reached the one million dollar mark, and then you determined that it was time to drop out of school. I mean, I'm sure that that was a tough conversation to have with your parents. <laughs> Actually, not too much. I think no? uh, that's that's. I, I always try to understand, like, why is it why is it that I started that company and like you know, it's it's more it's obviously much more normal to just finish your bachelor's degree and go on with your life. And I think one of the reasons why I was comfortable doing that is because I've, I've received like really awesome parenting. Uh, I didn't get the the money or the network or the uh, business skills, right from from my parents, but what I did get is the sense that um, you know the opportunity was was boundless and that they'd support me in whatever I wanted to do. Uh, so instead of like you know being prescribed to learn the piano or the guitar or to have to read uh, or have to pursue sports, it was always like, hey, we're here to support whatever you want to do. But I never felt any pressure. Uh, so it's interesting to see that if you give, I think, um, children quite a lot of breathing room and freedom, but quite a lot of support and unconditional love and um, they, they can, they can go, they can go pretty far. So, um, they've always been supportive. And so when I was, I'm not even sure there was a difficult conversation to have. It was just like, Oh, this is what I'm going to do. And they were like, all right, how can we help? And actually wow. they pulled together some savings. My mother in particular, I remember like, you know, remortgaged her house and put like 50,000 bucks, uh, in our seed round, uh, which was like a huge commitment, uh, for her at the time. So it was just like completely believing in, uh, what I was up to. Uh, and wanting to support uh, me, you know, uh, regardless of, of where I wanted to take my life. 
That's amazing. So I guess, um, you know, obviously this this ended up becoming the Sonder that we know today, but I guess for the people that are listening to get a better understanding, what ended up becoming the business model, you know, of Sonder? Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, it's it's evolved quite a lot since the, the student rental days. Uh, now we're just a modern hospitality brand. Like think of us as a 21st century version of the Marriott's or the Hilton's. Uh, we have both an apartment product. And so we work now with developers and they build towers for us and apartment buildings that are converted from a hat factory or from an office. And what's really special about those is that they're really well designed. Like you'll see if you go on our website, just really beautiful spaces. And they come with a service that's quite modern. So what that means is that you can basically uh, tap into services uh, like you know requesting an early check-in or a late checkout or getting recommendations all on the mobile app. And so we're really making the mobile app the core area where you're going to interact with 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 your stay and and that means kind of instantaneous service like around the clock uh, wherever you are in a city uh, in a way that really meets the needs of the next generation travel like the millennials and gen z in particular really really love that kind of service type that's more kind of self-created um, uh, self-serve uh, through digital channels and then uh, the third piece that really distinguishes us is the application of technology to uh, improve the uh, operating the operations of a hospitality business. And so a lot of stuff is done manually in, in hospitality today. And we've built software to automate a lot of that work. Um, and so that means that you can basically check into a Sonder without having to line up at a front desk. Uh, you can just do it on your phone and you walk straight up, right, right, up, right up to your room. Um, there's a lot of areas even the, in the, that the guest doesn't see that's in the background. Uh, for example, around uh, pricing or whenever you book a room, like figuring out which room we're going to put you into, like there's algorithms that decide that, that we've built on our end and, and, and a lot of things to manage how operations, like how we clean a room in between stays and, and so on and so forth, how we, you know, you have a request and we need to send someone in, like there's a tool that we call that we built called dispatch that will manage that workflow. So it's just really a modernization of the industry in order to democratize access to the best of the best. And one of the things that's standing in the way of the best of the best in hospitality, if you want a really, really nice hotel, you're going to have to fork several hundred dollars to make that happen. So our view is that by ap applying technology to reduce the operating costs, we can provide a really elevated experience. And you'll again, if you go on our website, you'll see really awesome stuff uh, at a price point that almost like defies, uh, you know, uh, realism. It's really kind of shocking the extent to which um, it's possible to offer these spaces at, at affordable price points. So that's that's what the brand has become. And we're about 10 countries today, 38 cities um, and, and expanding rapidly. So obviously you got started, you know, in in and you went to Montreal. I mean, you were you were in Montreal building this. Uh, how was I mean? And Montreal obviously has changed a lot. You know, now there's a lot of VCs and a lot of money that has gone to Montreal, but definitely Montreal is not San Francisco and the Bay Area. So, what were some of the challenges that you encounter on on building Sonder in Montreal, and and why did you make the decision of 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 making the move to San Francisco? Yeah, so I mean, started in Montreal not because it was a strategic choice. We're just that's where we were, and we're big believers actually today of the Montreal ecosystem. Like you mentioned, it's it's evolved tremendously over the last seven years since I started the business. But I think at the time, uh, the idea was that as as someone who hasn't built a company before, right, I needed to surround myself with people that had done it, and the ambition grew quite large, quite rapidly, and so I wanted to partner with and have folks on the executive team and on our board and as investors that had built global uh, consumer brands uh, extremely rapidly. And uh, those people are just really in really high concentration in the Bay Area. So the kind of disruptive organizations and and, it, and the thesis played out, right? Um, I moved uh, to uh, the Bay Area in 2016. So right after we raised our Series A, and I started building out the team there. And um, 
you know, the, the, just the caliber of talent and the learnings that I've been able to embed as a result of being there. And it's not just folks that work at Sonder, but it's also the the social environment, even like knowing, comparing notes with other entrepreneurs that are going through a similar um, kind of, yeah, expand, like, jur- they're on a similar journey of expansion uh, and size, and they're dealing with very similar problems like that. That is tremendously valuable. Um, but that being said, I don't think the Bay Area is the best place to scale an organization. And so uh, now we're, we actually have a, as many employees as we in Montreal as we do in San Francisco, and we're hiring even faster in Montreal as we are in San Francisco. So there's so many smart and capable people. I think what's lacking in the Montreal ecosystem is really that kind of senior talent that's been there, done that a few times already. And as a first-time entrepreneur, like that was really crucial to, to get things launched. Because how many employees do you have now? We're now at Saunders about 1,300 employees. Got it. I mean, in terms of... Um of culture, you know, and, and really hiring and, and, and I mean, obviously with you, with your philosophical approach, I'm sure that you've asked yourself, you know, the why, you know, behind people, behind culture, behind, you know, the dynamics. I mean, how do you think about culture? Yeah. So I've, um, I've written the post actually when we, when we, we closed our series D, which was in 2019 and we reached the, the billion dollar mark, um, on valuation, whatever that means. I wrote a post that, that described kind of what, what, how was it that we went from, you know, a college basement uh, to a billion dollar company in five years? And there's, it might be three levers. And yeah, you point out two of those. Uh, I think strategy is the other lever. And there's a lot to say about that. Um, but hiring and culture are the other two things that an entrepreneur, in my view, controls in order to get differentiated outcomes. And I think on, on hiring, um, it, it's, it, there's, I spent probably 30 or 40% of my time since I started the company in recruiting and hiring. And, and obviously, it's, incredibly important. And, and many books have been written about the topic. We've devised our own process at Sonder to hire. And really, I view it as a prediction game. Um, one of my favorite topics is generally is trying to understand like forecasting better, like super forecasting by Tutlock, I think is an excellent book or just cognitive biases and trying to figure out, you know, how could I potentially have a better chance of predicting whether someone will be a, a rock star? And how could do, I do that as fast as possible, which is one, one part of the job. And then the other part of the job is salesmanship. And actually, I think the most important thing there is relationship building, like accelerated relationship building and trust building. And if these two things, if you devise a process that allows you to predict with really high accuracy, whether they're good, and, or whether they're going to be exceptional and you know, build really strong connection, you should be able to bring them in and have really high, um, high hit rate on, on, on your hiring process. Uh, so I've written a little bit about some of my ideas there on 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 that blog post. Uh, maybe one that's worth uh, outlining is what I call the domain specific interview. So it's really it's a really simple idea, but one that's not often done. Um, so the first interview I'll do is going to be the store interview, mostly about building connection, knowing who you are, just the first filter. The second one though that I call the domain specific interview, I just try to understand. You know, suppose that I'm trying to hire someone to run technology or to run HR, like. What are the things that matter most in these disciplines? So basically, I'm trying to understand like what is the what are the kind of OKRs? What are their contributions to the organization? Um, so the really good people will tend to be like, okay, well, you know, in HR, it's really about engagement levels, and it's about attrition, it's about like recruiting metrics, and it's about uh, compliance, and da da da. Like they'll they'll have like a mental framework to describe really what matters, the objective function, so to speak, if you were to speak in economic terms, and. Um, and then the next question I ask is, okay, we have these four or five things that really matter most, hopefully quantitative variables. Then what are things that you do that you have learned um, as a, an HR technology professional to give you a differentiated chance of, of, of achieving outlier outcomes? It's like what I'm trying to do when I hire someone is trying to figure out someone that will get numbers and an outcome that is way better than the average person I could hire. I'm not looking for just someone that's good enough. I'm looking for truly extraordinary outlier talent 
And these kind of people, they have such pride in the methods that they've devised in order to win at their discipline. And they can't wait to tell you all about it. And maybe they've even written about it before and they follow up with the doc and they, um, you know, really, they, they teach you something, which is also super important as someone that doesn't have that kind of experience going through the interview process and asking 20 engineering leaders, what makes engineering great? And what have you done to actually get a disproportionate chance of outlier outcomes really means that I can assemble a bunch of notes. It's almost like I'm aggregating perspectives from 20 people as to what the best tricks are of the trade. And the, and the people that I find most impressive, are the ones that teach me the most during that interview process and have ideas. I'm like, oh my God, why aren't we doing this right away? We should be implementing this right now. Uh, and I take robust notes of this and I send the notes to the candidate afterwards uh, as well to kind of uh, correct if ever there's, there's some issues. But it just takes an hour and it's a deep dive interview. And I find it so, so helpful for me to educate myself and, and to have a better chance at finding someone that's really special. Nice. And, and talking about finding people that are special, I mean, obviously that's investors. How much capital have you guys raised to date? Uh, I think the total tally is probably, uh, I, I think it's around $700 million. So, or, yeah, just, just, just around there. And uh, we're going to be adding quite a lot more uh, to the balance sheet when we complete our uh, SPAC IPO, which should happen in the second half of this year. And we'll talk about this in just a little bit, but you know, talking about the the earlier stages or or that jumping from one cycle to another one from a financing perspective. I mean, I'm you were alluding to it before that you did your Series A, you know, you were still there in Montreal, but then you 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 relocated to San Francisco. How has been the the transition from one financing cycle to another one? And then also that shift from being fundraising in in Montreal to all of a sudden being fundraising in San Francisco. So I'm not sure much of it is is extremely different in the early stages. Um we tried to fundraise in Canada, and but but also for our Series A, we went and I spent six weeks in the Bay Area. I actually was supposed to spend just like a week or two, but then I had a, a meet a partner meeting on next Monday, canceled my flight, ended up staying out of a suitcase and like getting new underwear at HM kind of thing to just get this damn fundraising done. And it was really a nail-biting exercise as an entrepreneur like an entrepreneur that didn't that wasn't based in the United States, that didn't have that network, et cetera. But I ended up meeting quite a lot of venture funds and get, ended up getting it done. Um, Spark Capital, Nabil Hyatt, Spark Capital ended up leading the Series A. Um, and then after that, I had a really a thought partner to help me raise the, the next rounds. And, um, you know, of, of course, like this is something I'm sure um, the audience knows, but the it's, it's, it's increasingly about, about data and about like the metrics, right? As you get to later and later stages, and then you bring on, you know, and hired my CFO two years ago. And like, he takes on a disproportionate amount of now the fundraising activity. So that's kind of the ways in which fundraising really uh, changes. But you know, one thing that's also been surprising to me is even at later stages, it's not just it, it is more about the metrics, but it's not just about the metrics, like the story and where it's going and the vision and the mission of the organization is absolutely crucial uh, to getting um, you know, investors, uh, you know, uh, excited about, about, about what you're building. And what is that transition like going from early stage to growth stage, and then obviously dealing now with, with growth issues or scaling issues? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, one of the most challenging things that I think has also been well-documented is the kind of the organizational scale beyond 150 people. And when the organization goes from everyone is really intimate with each other, and there's kind of a, a basis for trust that exists, um, towards anonymity, and, and people not knowing uh, you on a personal level, like uh, me, stop, like I stopped doing interviews for every new hire maybe two and a half, three years ago when we reached maybe four or 500 employees is when I couldn't hire every, like my calendar was completely jammed 
And so that adds um, that layer of abstraction and, and the exponential quantity of like one to one connections that exist in the network as you become a larger and larger organization poses you know, real, real challenges. And it's crucial to then formalize the culture. And there, there, there's a coordination among various departments and things like we've had to push really hard a concept called assuming positive intent, because oftentimes like an organization that becomes anonymous, when something bad happens, you tend to ascribe some somewhat of it, like kind of there's an us versus them dynamic, or a kind of an evil and person that's really fighting for good on your side, um, that it's really important to kind of uh, get ahead of. Um, so we formalized our principles. And the principles are really in our view, as kind of our are, are the values in most core organizations we call ours are our, our leadership principles that are like inspired very much by Amazon and Bridgewater. But uh, those things are really the antidotes to ensuring that the organization scales. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of behavior that is just really, really, it's normal that it creeps up. Uh, people, like, I mean, it end up being like gossipy or there's some politics that can, that can, that can come in or uh, there's not, 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 not a lot of accountability or uh, people are fearful of telling each other really what they, what they believe. Um, when the organization becomes larger and larger. And so it's crucial to have principles in place to kind of fat, fight these very natural impulses. Um, there's impulses of bureaucracy and you know things really slowing down, the pace of innovation slowing, uh, risk-taking tends to go down as well. Uh, organizations tends to become a little bit less focused on the mission uh, as it scales. So all these kinds of things culturally have to be uh, like documented and really kind of embedded into the hiring process, the onboarding process, kind of the day-to-day in the organization. And as they say, you know, obviously this is part of culture and culture, you know, if it's a really good culture, it can weather any storm. And I'm sure that for you as for any other company that was in the hospitality, you know, segment, March to April of 2020 was probably a beast. Uh, so how was that for you guys? And I'm sure that that was probably one of the most challenging, you know, events or periods of time for you, you know, probably building this business. So how was that for you? No, it was, I mean, absolutely brutal. Um, couldn't have imagined worst. We were, uh, we had to lay off or furlough a third of our staff uh, in April of 2020. And it was, yeah, it was just an incredibly difficult thing uh, for all the folks that were impacted and all the uncertainty that existed in the world at that time as well. Uh, it was just super scary and a little like a punch in the gut. Um and, uh, you know, we, we, we went through it and, and the world got better, thankfully. Uh, things got back, bounced back much more rapidly than expected uh, initially. Um, but uh, we were able to rehire quite a lot of folks. And, and obviously, like the job market today is, is doing exceptionally well. So I'm, I'm at least happy that, 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 that the folks that were impacted got back on their feet. But uh, that was, yeah, a very difficult moment. And, and, you know, battling COVID has been by far the most difficult thing that I've had to face building this organization. And it's really unrelenting throughout 2020, actually, even though the bounce back during the summer was a little faster than expected, uh, the recovery kept being pushed out and out and out. And I don't think no one would have predicted or very few, you have to be extremely skeptical and clairvoyant in March or April of 2020 to think that in June of 2021, there'd still be substantial restrictions and that there would still be cases rising in some, in some areas of the world. And that uh, the fact that it's, it's persisted for so long, I think, is, uh, was, was been incredibly difficult to, uh, to work through. And, and thankfully, like a lot of folks have, 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 you know, are long-term believers and have stayed and, and they've decided to kind of fight along us, uh, alongside us and, 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 and get out of it and hopefully stronger on the other side. Uh, but we've lost also some really good people along the way as well. People are just like, you know what, I didn't sign up for this. And a bunch of other companies are on fire, and I'm gone. Uh, so folks that weren't really bought into the mission in the first place, or weren't really bought into what we were trying to achieve, and were there 
when it was up and to the right, but the minute it went sideways because of something that's totally outside of our control, um, you know, they were uh, they were gone and not supporting us. So it was really kind of clarifying to see, hey, you know what, we really, really have to make sure we surround ourselves with people that want to be here, not just because it's a fast growing rocket ship, uh, but because, uh, you know, maybe it's one of the things that is attractive, but it should also be about a, a bunch of other things for, um, you know, the people that have been there uh, in the last 18 months are just, I mean, I owe them everything. Um, and, um, and hopefully, you know, the fruits of their labor are going are gonna to pay off tremendously in the years to come. And talking about the fruits of the labor, and as what, as what they say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You know, you in this it. case, you guys are right now, you know, obviously we're, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel with this COVID thing. You know, now it seems that, you know, there's no mass. The other day, I actually went to a massless party with 250 people, people shaking hands and no mask. I was like, wow, this, this is like weird, you know, but it, it, it felt amazing, no? And I think that, you know, obviously now the, the travel and hospitality is, is definitely opening up, uh, but... You know, in this case, you know, you guys, you know, are keeping up the momentum. I mean, right now, you know, you're now preparing for what's going to be going public, uh, which is pretty exciting. Uh, so how has it been, you know, this, you know, preparation and, and now thinking about becoming a, a listed company? I mean, I'm sure that that was this is way beyond the dreams that you had when you started in Miguel University. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is incredibly exciting. Um, and I'm, I'm just above all, like incredibly proud of, of what's been built. So it's, it's, I actually am a big fan of doing it in the public eye and I love the accountability in a way like the markets and the fact that we have to publish our numbers every three months and show what our forecast is and our guidance is. It's actually terrifying for most entrepreneurs. And that's usually when they're like, okay, I'm done. I've done my job of going from zero to one. Now someone else take over, but I actually really thrive, I think in that environment. And especially as a really fast growing company where like, I feel like even, even though, um, you know, we're about to begin our, have our public debut. I feel like there's been now a legacy of companies that have innovated a ton post going public. And I find those stories to be incredibly inspiring. So I was rereading kind of the, 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 the Bezos's shareholder letters, annual shareholder letters, um, and, uh, looking at companies that, you know, like, like, like Amazon or even Netflix, like change, like there's been incredible change that's occurred after they've gone public. And I feel like innovation is, is, uh, more innovation can happen post public. Uh, markets uh, debut than 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 before if um if if the management team has really the will to do it so i'm I'm incredibly excited by it um i'm obviously incredibly excited by the pace of recovery of travel and like that 250 person party like three four months ago it was like impossible, impossible. to do um but but increasingly with vaccination rates uh you know rising right rising pretty rapidly across the world uh there's light at the end of the tunnel i think there's there's general excitement around around the bounce back and some call it the the revenge of 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 the travel industry in the in, in the second half of 2021 yeah so i guess say imagine that you go to sleep tonight francis and you have the uh, snooze like no other and you wake up in a world 5 years later where the vision of of Sonder is fully realized what does that world look like yeah i think it's possible for anyone globally to travel and stay somewhere. And by the way, it's not just travel. It could be for a few nights, but it could also be for many months and stay in a place that is just incredibly inspiring. Like it's designed like what you see in the magazines and you were like, wow, I'm getting this. Um, despite the fact that five years ago, I'd probably have to spend a thousand dollars a night to get a place that's this nice. Uh, and, th and the brand also is uh, capable of, 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 of being kind of your entry point towards a city. It's not just about uh, staying in a nice place, but it's also, hey, I know that 
Uh, there's an amazing restaurant that the tables are always booked out two weeks in advance. And I'm going to tell you, hey, this is the time to book your seven o'clock table for this restaurant. So I'm kind of your curator and like your insider and your best friend when it comes to visiting that place. Um, I think it's a time as well where we'll be able to have no compromises when it comes to the quality of service that you'd get in a really amazing accommodation. Um, so that means that if you want to have dry cleaning done, if you want to have a massage therapist sent to your room, if you want to have um, you know, room service, like all of it can be done on the phone, but at a price point that's more uh, affordable than, than, than what is currently offered. So basically, it's, it's, it's a, uh, the vision is accomplished if we have democratized and elevated hospitality um, and enable a new class of digital nomads, folks, folks that are, are working remotely to camp for one month here and spend one month there, uh, you know, one month in Mexico City, and maybe you spend two months in Miami and kind of roam across the world and you have really productive spaces, again, that are really just, you know, jaw dropping, um, but offered at a price point where you can actually sustain staying in them, if not living in them uh, for a really large proportion of the year. Um, this business offers, you know, Sonder offers properties all over the world at that point, you know, uh, hundred top hundred global cities, resort destinations and, you know, in any format and, sp and especially in buildings that are purpose built for our use. So I'm talking about, um, you know, call it a 200 unit tower where you have some hotel rooms, some one bedroom apartments, all the way to three or four bedroom apartments, some lofts all in one, uh, property. Yeah. I think, I think that would be a world where basically you have an extension of your home on your phone, wherever you're at. Um, can push a couple buttons and then use your phone to stay there for as long as you want with you know services available at the snap of a finger. I love it. I love it. And one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, imagine if I put you into a time machine and I'm able to bring you back in time and you have the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self, that younger Francis that you know is still at McGill University, you know, thinking about, hey, you know, this is cool. Maybe there's something that I can do around this thing. And you're able to sit that person in front of you and you're able to give that younger Francis one piece of advice before launching the company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, this is a fascinating question. I think probably the most important thing would have been to be more thorough when it comes to documenting the culture. So earlier we were discussing about the hiring process. Like that's, in my view, a custom that's part of a culture. But there's a lot of other things that were just kind of undefined. Uh, in an organization is so important to just be very clear about who you are as a company and how you do things that will allow prospective employees to figure out whether they like it. And then it's going to make it such that everyone's here. They have a constant reminder of how to uh, behave within the organization. A really strong culture defines like what are behaviors that are expected and what are things that are prohibited. And it has a point of view that's not for everyone. Uh, but um, so I, I, I feel like there was a few years in building the organization where I lacked that clarity or where I had a version one of it and I didn't update it and I didn't make sure that it was really pushed across the organization. And then I woke up one day being like, wow, like, for example, one of our cultural customs is that we don't use Slack to communicate for things that are non-urgent. Only urgent communication should go through Slack. Otherwise, you should use Asana or Task Manager in order to communicate with your teams. It's a much better way to organize work, much more productive, etc. And then I realized, oh my God, there's hundreds of people in this company that don't know about this cultural custom because it's not been built into, you know, all of the, the hiring process and the onboarding in a way that has, is as thorough as what was needed. So it's so easy to get caught day to day when you're building an organization uh, on, you know, things that are kind of, you know, decisions, strategic decisions, or should we do A or B or C and lose sight of the fact that the culture is kind of something that exists in the background. I've heard the concept of culture debt in a sense and, and accumulating culture debt is potentially 
one of the most dangerous dangerous things to do. It is really kind of the foundational thing upon upon which everything else rests. Wow. So so as we're talking about lessons here and and you were you know pointing to some books earlier, what would you say is a book that you wish you would have read earlier? Yeah, the one actually the one that I mentioned is probably a good start. Super forecasting uh, by Philip Tetlock. I think it really encompasses uh, a lot of the or it's a very practical guide for how to predict better. And prediction really uh, is, it's, it, sound, it sounds niche. Like I, if you're not into forecasting, if you're not a finance person, why does it matter so much? Whereas really when you make a decision, you're, you're really f- doing a prediction. Like you're, like, you're trying to figure out where to go, where, where, where you should go to college or which company you should join. Like you're really, it's really an active prediction. Like which stock should you invest in? And you're really trying to figure out, okay, five years from now, what's going to be the stock price for that thing, um, for that company. So I think the art of predicting well is crucial to decision making. Is the most important input to making decisions is trying to is predicting. And uh, Tetlock has, has come up with a brilliant synthesis of, of research that he's done over decades uh, for what distinguishes people that are really good at forecasting versus, versus those that are, that are not. So he studies what he calls their super forecasters, people that are consistently in the top 2%. Uh, or some cutoff of the best, most reliable forecasters, and what are all the methodologies that they use? Like, do they, do they, you know, do they have a quantitative background or not? And like, what kind of do they, which kind of publications do they read? And, and what are their method methodologies for coming up with opinions? How, like, okay, obviously they're much more open-minded individuals because they're and they're constantly looking at ways to update their their beliefs. Kind of the Bayesian updating framework is something that they kind of naturally do. So I think that that's a really foundational one, frankly, for anyone that makes like kind of high stakes decisions uh, or, uh, or or simply like is interested in, in, in predicting better. I think this is something that's really um, a fascinating work. work. Wow. That's very profound. Well, I got some reading for this weekend. So, so Francis, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, um, let's see. Uh, maybe shoot me a note, Davidson at Sonder.com. Um, send me an email and, and I'll, be, I'll, I'll be happy to engage. Amazing. Well, Francis, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.